We are ready. All right, let's start with a prayer this morning. Dear Lord, we come into your presence this morning with grateful hearts. And we invite you to be with us today. Lord, we're going to look at some things today that are were written so long ago, and yet they hit right at the heart of who we are as Christians today, this minute. And I ask that you clear our minds. I ask that you make my presentation clear and not confusing. And Lord, please guide us as we discuss and think about and pray about what we talk about today. In your most holy name, amen. All right, we are in the beginning of chapter 2, Revelation. This begins the seven letters to the churches, or actually what's called the seven letters to the churches. I want you to read the very first Three words of chapter 2. What does it say? It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. I don't know that I ever noticed before I was preparing for this class that these letters are not addressed to the church itself, but to the angel of the church. To the spiritual reality of the church. The heavenly being the presence that that church is in the Lord's hand. This, if you remember, it goes on to say to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And if you remember, the seven lampstands were the churches, but the seven stars were the angels of the churches. So this letter is, and if you look through each, each of the letter is addressed to the angel of the church. Very interesting. So to, the, to me, that tells me these letters were not just intended for the physical people who lived and died in that century. But this letter and all of these letters was for the People of all ages, because that church, by definition, is going to live on in its spirit. In each of the letters, if you look, Christ describes, this is a letter from Christ to the church, not from John to the church. So, in this letter, Christ selects a particular attribute of himself to emphasize. Remember last week we looked at the description of Christ in his, in his imperishable body? Well, in each letter... He picks out one attribute of that body and says, this is the Christ who is writing to you. So we want to pay attention to those because in Ephesus, Christ says, I'm the one who is holding the spirit of the churches, not just Ephesus, but all the churches in his right hand. And I walk among the churches, among the lampstands. Okay. That tells us that this message to Ephesus is going to pertain to that church's identity, to its ability to function as a church. 
Okay, so that's what we need to be looking for. Historically, Ephesus was one of the most important cities in the Roman Empire. It was up, right up there with Corinth, with Antioch, with Alexandria, where the Great Library was, and with Rome itself. It was that important of a city. And the reason it was that important was because if you wanted to go from Rome to any of the provinces east, uh, any of the Roman provinces east, you went through Ephesus whether you went by land or by sea. They were a seaport as well as a land route, and they were on both major routes. They had, uh, if you look at the map that I handed out to you, you can find Ephesus, and you will not find it on the sea. It used to have a harbor there, and the harbor had about a three-mile channel that connected the harbor to Ephesus itself. By comparison, the Houston Ship Channel is like 60 miles long, so a three-mile channel is nothing. And so they were right on this uh, harbor, and it was because they were right on this trade route, they were very wealthy. And they had built a temple to the goddess Artemis, which also same thing as the goddess Diana. She was the goddess of hunting, of wild nature, and of fertility. And this, the temple had been built in Ephesus by King Croesus who you remember from your studies in high school and college, he was the one who was famous for his wealth, for how wealthy he was. Well, he was the first one who built that temple. The temple was you know, destroyed various times, but it was one of the wonders of the ancient world, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was so big and so beautiful. And so pilgrims would come from as far away as India and Persia would come to Ephesus and they would bring gifts or leave gifts to the goddess Artemis. Well, they would many times, as you can imagine, buy the gifts there at the temple. They had vendors in the temple to sell you gifts to leave to to Artemis rather than, you know, dragging them 200, 600, 800 miles with you. That, those very vendors were the ones who incited a riot when Paul preached at Ephesus about the worthlessness of idols because he was attacking their very livelihood. And he and his, and his team barely got out with their lives. Um, the only reason they did get out with their lives was because there was a Roman law against rioting. The other interesting thing to know about Ephesus is the pastor, who the pastor was. The pastor at Ephesus was Timothy, Paul's protege, the young man that he had raised like a son, who was so close to. So when Revelation is being written, Timothy has now been pastor at Ephesus for about 30 years. He's no longer a young man. And he is now called Bishop Timothy. And we do not know if he ever lived to actually receive the letter. I suspect that he did, but he was martyred, he was beat up by an angry mob two years after Revelation was written, approximately. It was about that, and we don't know precisely when Revelation was written. So right around that same time frame, Timothy lost his life as a martyr. Biblically, Ephesus was remarkable from the very beginning. If you look in Acts 19, I'm just going to tell you this. I didn't put it on your um, handouts or anything, but I want to tell you how the, the church at Ephesus started out. Because one of the things that Christ talks about in his letter to the Ephesians here in Revelation is their first love, what they were like at the beginning. So it makes sense for us to take a look at that. Well, when Paul came to Ephesus on his preaching travels, 
he discovered there were already 12 men in Ephesus who were disciples of Christ. And he said, really? (laughs) Were you baptized with the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, who's the Holy Spirit? What's that? (laughs) And Paul said, "Uh, (laughs) maybe we better talk about this. He, He said, well, were you baptized? They said, oh, yeah, we were baptized. And he said, well... Into what? And they said, well, we were baptized in, by, with John's baptism, you know, John the Baptist type baptism. And so Paul says, oh, that's a baptism of repentance of sins. You, that's not enough. You need to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Okay, so it's, it's almost as if they were kind of baptized as disciples of John the Baptist as opposed to disciples of Christ, though they believed in Christ and apparently considered themselves followers, followers of Christ. So Paul rebaptized them. This is in um, Acts 19, is where this story is. Paul rebaptized them. And then it says, And when he laid his hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit in power. So this is the very kernel of the beginning of the church at Ephesus. Paul stayed and preached and taught in Ephesus for something between two and three years. Very long time. And ultimately, they start out in the temple. They get kicked out of the temple. They have to rent space in another little you know, place in town. And he preaches and stays with them. And Acts 19, 11, and 12 says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. That is the kind of power that church at Ephesus was experiencing at the beginning. It was so powerful that there were even copycat Christians, copycat preachers who would go around Ephesus casting out evil spirits in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches about. They, had, they didn't know Jesus, but they would cast out evil spirits in the name of the God that Paul worships. Until one day, they came to a man, and they tried this, and the demon in that man spoke back to them and said, I know who Jesus is, and I've heard about Paul, but who the heck are you? And he, that demon empowered that man, and he utterly beat the crap out of those copycat preachers. Well, that stopped that noise. <laughs> but that did, that news of that happening spread like wildflower through the Jewish community at Ephesus, through the Gentile community at Ephesus. And the Lord, the Holy Spirit, just worked mightily in that entire community. People came to God by the truckload. They, in fact, at Ephesus, there was a whole, Ephesus was famous for its community of sorcerers. And they had these scrolls that I, I assume they would like, you know, tell your future out of them or heal you out of them. I don't know what that was in these scrolls, but it was, they were very famous for these scrolls. These sorcerers in that community confessed their sin and brought their scrolls and burned them. That's operating in power against Satan. From this groundswell of miracles, Ephesus was born. And we are so fortunate to have the letter to the Ephesians that Paul wrote. Because he wrote that 
during those early days of the Ephesians, when Timothy was a very young pastor, and they were just starting out as a church. And on the other hand, we have this letter to the Ephesians from Christ after they have lost their first love. So we can look, and that's what we're going to do first today, is we're going to look at the letter of Ephesians kind of side by side with the letter from Christ to the Ephesians and compare how far they have come. What is the difference? For one thing, Paul reminded them in the first letter that they were indwelled by the Holy Spirit and that they were literally marked by the Holy Spirit to be redeemed. They were Coke bottles left to be taken back to the grocery store by the owner. Okay? They had a price on their head. And we have the Holy Spirit, His mark on our heads also. Paul said, you're waiting to be ransomed in full. This is after Christ has already come and been crucified. Okay? Therefore, something else is going to happen. It's not that they're waiting for Christ to come and forgive their sins. That's all done for. He's saying that those Christians at Ephesus, just like us, have a mark already. The mark that the Holy Spirit places on us. So that God says, Myron belongs to me. Joyce belongs to me. And I'm going to come and ransom you in full one day. And that's what Revelation is about, is that one day, you know, when that's going to happen. Ephesus was not a unified church at the beginning. It was one of those churches that was made up of Jews and Gentiles. And there was in the early church a ton of of tension between Jews and Gentiles because they had such very different cultures, very different beliefs in what holy meant and what a holy life meant. And Paul spent a whole lot of the letter to the Ephesians trying to explain that God had utterly wiped out the division between Jews and Gentiles. It no longer existed. And that he did not want them to act as if it did exist. Ephesians 3, 6-11. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. You see, in the Old Testament, there was no clue to the Jews that the Gentiles were going to get to be part of their inheritance. Okay? And that's what Paul is telling the Ephesians. This is in his letter to the Ephesians. This has been a a mystery that has been hidden in the past. But listen to what he says next on verse 10. His intent, this is God's intent, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, the church is to reveal to the rulers and authorities of the heavenly realms the mystery that Gentiles and Jews now share the inheritance together. We very rarely, as a church, think of our ministry as being anything other than here to human beings. Our ministry is equally to human beings and to spiritual beings in the heavenly realms. God is about the spirit. 
he is not about the physical earth. Okay? That is part of his creation. He does function here. But the important thing is what you cannot see, not what you can see. The Ephesian Christians, as you might expect from how they began and from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, were very gifted in Christ. They had apostles. Apostles are people who go out and plant churches. They had evangelists. That is different than an apostle. I'm an evangelist. That is one of my gifts. And, and I'll share with you a, what somebody had told me as a, as a youth when they were praying for me and about what I should do when I grow up. And they had a vision of kind of who I was in the spirit. And it was an evangelist with a sword in one hand to cut away the dead, to cut away the untruth, healing oil in the other hand to bring the blessing of God to those people and the healing of God to those people. That is what an evangelist does. Okay? An evangelist brings the word of God and the grace of God to people. Very different than planting churches. Okay? So an apostle plants churches. We, I explained an evangelist. They have pastors who deal, as you can imagine, as pastors do now. That function has not changed. And teachers, which is kind of what also what I'm doing here. We're just you know, teaching each other from what we have studied and learned. And he says, the whole purpose of this, Ephesians, is for you to build each other up. Regardless of what gifts you have, the purpose is to build each other up. You're supposed to share these gifts that God gives you so that we each together help each other become mature Christians so that you learn how to discern truth from false. And the Ephesians had learned this. They did not tolerate false teaching. Look at verses 2, through six, two 3, and 6 of Revelation chapter 2. This is Christ speaking. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. You have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. And I know that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, depending on what commentary you read, you get a different explanation for who the heck the Nicolaitans were. We don't really know. Okay, but what we do know from kind of the collective body of information that's out there from early writers, that one of the recurring motifs is that they taught that Christians could be Christians and operate immorally in immorality, especially sexual immorality. Because as you can imagine, with a temple to the goddess Diana or Artemis, that was kind of a big deal there in Ephesus. And so um, the Nicolaitans had been identified by the church in Ephesus as being false teachers. And they hated the Nicolaitans, and Christ said, I hate them too. You know, you're doing good there. Okay. Then in Paul's letter to Ephesus at the beginning, comes the very famous teaching to people who are in love. And that's particularly pertinent to Christ's message in Revelation about the fact that they lost their first love. It's the passage in Ephesians 5, 25 through 30, that talks about wives submitting to their husbands. And if you actually look at, through that pa- passage, 
he talks all about it. And we're going to read some of it first. But when you get to verse 32, Paul says, by the way, I kind of got a little off track here. What I'm trying to talk to you about is the mystery of the church and her relationship with Christ. In verse 33, he says, you know, that doesn't negate everything I said about wives need, needing to submit to their husbands. But he said in verse 32, the whole point of what I'm trying to get to you is, is that, that the relationship of Christ and the church is mirrored in the relationship of a husband and a wife. The church has the role of the wife. The church has the submitting role, the subordinate role. The church is to follow Christ just as a wife is to follow her husband. Paul couches all of that in words of love. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. And this is where the Ephesians apparently failed. In their strength, they had a wise and strong pastor. They had all these gifts. They had this awesome beginning. But now that first generation has most likely passed away. And the second generation is most likely kind of running the church. And now they've kind of got a pattern. They know how it's supposed to work. They know who has what role. They've got it all organized and they're doing it in their own strength. They've gotten away from following Christ as the head of their church. For this, Christ calls them to repentance in in verse 4 of Revelation chapter 2. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Christ is calling them back to their love affair with him. And he's calling them back to be his own precious possession, his bride. If they persist in doing it their own way and in their own strength, he will no longer call them his church. They will, in essence, get a divorce from Christ. He will put them away from him. Now, in the world... They probably would go right on calling themselves a church, doing just what they're doing. And it might take the world a while to figure out that there's no power there. I think that happens to a lot of churches. But Christ is calling them to a real and living relationship. And then he says, then he tells them the reward. If they will repent and turn to him. In verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Three words I want to focus on there. First one is what the Spirit says to the church as. Church is plural. The Spirit is not just saying this to the Ephesians. He's saying it to all churches. The next word is overcomes. To him who overcomes. We're going to talk a lot more about what it means to overcome when we get to the next church, which is Smyrna. 
but every single church in these seven letters is given a blessing for him who overcomes. What does that mean? Does that mean the people who don't overcome don't get blessed? Does that mean that the people who don't overcome are condemned to death? Because it says the ones who do overcome are going to eat of the tree of life, right? Does it mean you have to, you know, if you're overcoming, does that mean you like have to be able to get through persecution and torture without recanting? And if somehow in your humanity you fail, you go to hell? You know, what, what do these things mean? I find great comfort in 1 John 5, verses 3 through 5. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That is what it means to overcome. Simply that you hold on to your faith that Jesus is who he said he is. And the third word or phrase that I want to pull out of verse 7 is tree of life. This is really amazing. God says, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. Not many people remember There were two trees in the middle of the Garden of Eden that were special. One was the tree of life, and one was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I printed um, Genesis 3.22 for you, but God did not forbid Adam and Eve from eating of both of those trees. The only tree they were not to eat from was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that knowledge, that disobedience, you know, certainly caused them to be put out of the garden. But the reason they got put out of the garden, if you read carefully in in verses 22 through 24, was because now that they had the knowledge of good and evil, It would be a problem if they now reached out and ate of the tree of life and lived forever. Okay? That's why they were put out of the garden, because the tree of life was still there. Very interesting stuff. Well, tree of life is never mentioned again in Scripture until you get to Revelation. It's mentioned here as the reward for him who overcomes... And then it's talked about at the very, very end of Revelation. And let's look at that. Look at the very end of Revelation 22. And I might have printed this in your, in your handouts. But it's Revelation 22, essentially verses 1 through 16. I'll kind of skip around. So then the angel showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree of life were for the healing of the nations. And in verse 10, And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, the one who is filthy still be filthy, and let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, 
I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. But I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. We may never know the choice that the Ephesians make. We can kind of surmise what it is. That church no longer exists. And, in fact, that city no longer exists. It's nothing but ruins. You kind of wonder if it was the hand of God that caused their precious harbor to fill up with mud so that they no longer had access to the trade routes that had made them so famous. Ultimately, almost everybody in Ephesus became Christian but you wonder if it was because of the witness of that church or was it because Constantine made them be Christians. What does matter, however, is that this letter is not just a letter from Christ to a church long dead. It's a letter to us as a church. And you will find that each of these letters is very personal. A church is nothing but the individual choice of each Christian in it. We are a group of Christians. That's what a church is. So, are you ready to go to Smyrna? See what happens next? To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The first and the last who was dead and and has come to life says this. So, in the the church at Ephesus, Christ said, I'm the one who holds you in his hand. To the church at Smyrna, he says, I'm writing you this as the one who was resurrected, the one who is dead and who has come to life. So we're going to expect that the message to Smyrna is going to have to do with their physical death, their resurrection, and their reward. Okay? That's what we'd be looking for. In 627 B.C., Smyrna was destroyed. It was a very ancient city as you can surmise from that date. It was only about 35 miles north of Ephesus. But in 627 B.C. it was destroyed. That meant it existed before that. 627 B.C., for those of you who are in the Daniel class, was right around the time that Nebuchadnezzar's father was coming to power. Okay? It was when the Neo-Babylonian Empire was just starting up. It was destroyed, the city was destroyed, and it lay in ruins until the Greeks came and built it again on kind of a nearby site. They didn't build it in exactly that same place, but but very close by. Therefore, the description of Jesus to to the church in Smyrna as the one resurrected had particular meaning to this city that had recently been resurrected. Okay, we are in, we had just come out of the Greek Empire and gone into the Roman Empire. In 190, about 200 BC, Smyrna switched allegiance from the Greeks to the, to the Romans. And in doing so, they invented the goddess Roma, Mother Rome. 
Okay? And they just like built this whole religious industry around this goddess that they invented. And they did it to ingratiate themselves with the Romans and to prove how loyal they were to the Romans. And in fact, Smyrna, during Jesus' lifetime, in A.D. 23, Smyrna was the first city given permission by the Roman Senate to build a temple in honor of the emperor, the emperor Tiberius at the time. Revelation 2, verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The Greek word for tribulation here is thlipsis, and it's the same word that Jesus used to describe the great tribulation okay, in his address. According to Jack Hayford, who was the, one of the commentators I, I uh, consulted, <laughs> read, as I was preparing for this, um, this is the same word that was used to describe the Roman torture of placing a victim on the ground and then putting heavy stones on his chest until he suffocated. It brings to mind that verse in Daniel about the Antichrist wearing down the saints. It's just this huge, unbearable, deep pressure. This church was experiencing that kind of pressure. They were also experiencing abject, extreme poverty. There's two Greek words for poor. One means in straightened circumstances. Okay? It means you're on a budget. The other one means absolutely abject poverty. <laughs> and this is the one that's used here. And really, when you see the word poor in the gospel, generally it's the abject poverty. The other word is very rarely used. But Jesus then praises the church and says, but you're rich. And they know what he's talking about. They're rich in the spirit. And in your handouts, I put a couple of verses out of Ephesians. Ephesians 1, verse 7 through 8. And Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 19. And just kind of highlighted for you these some of the riches, just some of the riches, that we have claimed to as Christians. In, a, in the first verse, in Ephesians uh, 1, 7 and 8, it says, The riches of his grace are the redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 19, there, he will give us riches of his glory. And what are those? That's to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And so that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend the breadth, the length, the height and the depth of the love of Christ. That passes anything you could possibly understand with your mind. So that you will be filled up with the fullness of God. And then in Philippians 4.19, we have the riches in glory. And what are those? Simply that Christ will supply all your need. Whatever that need is, he will supply it. And then Christ goes on to say, you know, I know what kind of people you're dealing with here in Smyrna. You're dealing with Jews who say they are Jews, but they're really not. They're a synagogue of Satan. There was a very large Jewish community at Smyrna, and they persecuted the Christians unmercifully. In fact, one of the most famous martyrs of all time was martyred at Smyrna. He was the pastor at Smyrna. He was the bishop at Smyrna, just like Timothy was the bishop at Ephesus. His name was Polycarp. 
he had, was a godly man and led that church his, for many, many years. At the age of 86, he was dragged before the proconsul of Rome. The proconsul had pity on him, said, I, and, and this was after several other men had already been martyred like that week, you know, that day by being torn apart by wild beasts. And the, and the proconsul said, look, I don't want to martyr a good old man. You're obviously a good old man, you know. And he said, just like take a little pinch of incense and throw it over here and say, I recognize Caesar and I'll let you go. And Polycarp said, I have served Jesus for 86 years and he loves me and now... At the end of my life, I'm going to throw away my reward in heaven. I'm going to walk away from my Savior. I don't think so. And they burned him at the stake. We read several scriptures last week about the salvation of the Jews. I don't know if y'all remember. We talked about, we read a bunch of scriptures that said all the Jews would be saved. There were scriptures in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We talked about the fact, what does that mean? Does that mean like Jews who... We're born Jews. They're all going to be saved no matter what they do. Or does it mean Jews who converted to Judaism? You know, what, what do those scriptures mean? All the Jews are going to be saved on the last day. Is it just the ones alive on the last day? Is it all of them from forever? Well, the scripture certainly implied it was all of them from forever. That, if you read the plain text, that's what it says. But here we see that God does not see all Jews as Jews. He does not see them all as sons of God. Look at Matthew 3, verses 7 through 10. This is John the Baptist speaking. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, those are two kinds of Jews, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Look at John 8, 31 through 45. This is Jesus. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me. Because my word has no place in you. I speak things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. If you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham didn't do this. You are of your father the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. And finally, look at Romans 2, 28 through 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. That pretty clearly answers our questions from last week about which Jews are the ones that are all Jews. (laughs) 
Okay? It's talking about the inward man, the circumcision of the heart. So Smyrna is faced with these Jews who were a synagogue of Satan, not, of, not sons of God. And Jesus says in verse 10 of chapter 2, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you in prison, so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. The whole concept of suffering is completely misunderstood by Christians. I think there's a whole lot of bad theology out there on suffering. It is, suffering is basic, a theme that we will see running through Revelation. It, and we need to be very clear on what suffering is and how it relates to a Christian, to a believer. And, you know, how it relates to unbelievers, we get that part. It's the part, how does it relate to, to us that we need to, to look at? Because there's a whole bunch of questions that come up, like, why are they going to suffer in, you know, in Smyrna? Why didn't God, you know, he knows they're going to suffer. Why didn't he just do something about it? What's the deal? Why is this happening? Is, why is the devil being allowed to make them suffer? Aren't we protected from him? Haven't they suffered enough? It gets down to that very basic question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Right? And we wrestle with this. We wrestle with this when a child dies. When a truck plows into a nursing home. You know? Why do these things happen? There are several answers to this. And I'm going to try to lay them out as clearly as I can in Scripture. We're not going to get all the way through today. So we're going to, you know, pick up. We're going to do a little bit today and then we'll pick up there next week. But the first thing we need to distinguish is the fact that God can initiate suffering and Satan can initiate suffering. And they have two completely different purposes in doing so. So if we start with God, God will initiate suffering at its most basic as punishment. Okay? You have been judged. You, are, you have chosen the, the darkness. You suffer these consequences. It is punishment. Okay? God also initiates suffering as a form of discipline. Okay? And fortunately for us, God is a God of mercy. And those lines kind of get blurred. There are lots of examples in Scripture where what started out as punishment by God, God saw his people suffer under this punishment. And he had pity on them. And had mercy on them. And he ended the punishment Okay, they repented. He saw their hearts and their repentance. And that punishment became nothing more than a severe discipline, a a severe path correction, if you will. This is like, I'm not even going to read you the scriptures for this. I'm going to call them to mind for you. Mankind, totally wicked, gets wiped out by the flood. But God spares Noah and regenerates mankind out of his great mercy. World gets wicked again. Totally wicked. God doesn't destroy mankind. Instead, he calls one man and one family out and says, for the sake of this world, I'm going to make you holy. That man was Abraham. God called him out and said, you know why I'm calling you out? To be a blessing and a a salvation to the whole rest of that wicked world. I'm doing this because I love them, even though they're wicked. Israel. 
that very nation that was called out to be holy and to save the world? Wicked. (laughs) Totally wicked. God says, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to scatter you. You're just not going to be a nation anymore. I, never mind. I'm going to, that bad idea. I'm going to dissolve this. And that happened. Their cities were destroyed. Jerusalem is sacked and burned. The whole nation is dispersed and goes into captivity. God sees their suffering and their oppression and his heart aches for them. He sees their true repentance. In fact, he says, if you remember from Daniel, from our study, he even promised to bring them back before they repented. He said, you know what? I'm going to gather you to me and then you will repent. And you will come back to me and you will be my people and I will be your God. And then what about the rest of us, the Gentiles? Okay, we've totally lost it. We have been disobedient. We have been wicked. And yet. God sends Christ to us to save us. I mean, it's just God's pattern that, yes, he punishes, he disciplines, but he has so much love and, and mercy. He always gives us a way to come back. Oh, one thing about punishment. You know, all those times that we just went through when God's fixing to punish, he never, ever punishes you without warning you. He is not the big, it's not like a big, those, you know those gopher games where the little gopher heads pop up out of the holes and you try to bam them on the head with a, this is not a picture of our relationship with God. Okay. He, he warns you. Okay. There is no question in your mind. If you ever experience suffering and you wonder, did I sin? Did I do something wrong? The answer is no. You, there will be no doubt in your mind. Okay, if you're suffering because you have gone astray. God, God is just doing this. When God does it, he does it in love. You know, there's an educational focus towards some of this, too. You know, if you think back in your minds, at least I can, is that some of the worst things that have ever happened to me has ultimately resulted in some of the best things I've ever Exactly. And in fact, God actually will initiate suffering through Satan. He will allow Satan to have access to us for the purpose of discipline. Okay? Look at, um, skip, you might have skipped a couple of, of verses because I, I put in some for you about discipline. They were from Deuteronomy 8.5, Proverbs 3.11, Hebrews 12.7, 1 Corinthians 11.32 that talk about God disciplining us. But if you skip down to 1 Corinthians 5, chapter 1 through 5 this speaks to some extent to what Joyce was saying where you know just the bad things I did those consequences caused me to turn it is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I come with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. 
so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. And look at, there's another example in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 20 where he talks about Hymenaeus and Alexander who have apparently gone astray. And Peter says, I've handed them over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So, just by leaving us to the natural consequences of our actions, the tough love that we so often have to resort to as parents of our own children, that tough love we have a pattern from God. But it's not, the purpose is not to make us hurt for the, just for the purpose of hurting. The purpose is to make us hurt, to realize we're walking, we're off the paved road. You know, we're walking where we should not be walking. It's time to stop and we'll pick up next week with Satan's role in suffering and how that relates to the believer. And then we'll finish up Smyrna.